This is Jezology. It's a real science, honestly. Not just a podcast of me talking about me. Or, or maybe it is. It's Jezology. Hello and welcome to the Jazzology podcast. My name is Jeremy Johnson and I am the host and shopkeeper, if you will, of this little shop of waffles. This week's episode features singer-songwriter, band member, music producer and musical man about town in the great Cornish countryside, Mr. Ryan Jones. Ryan and I sat down a few months ago at his self-built music studio just outside Truro in Cornwall, and we had a great chat about Martin Guitars, my personal favourite, music production, the Cornish music scene, and coordinating stages at the Eden Project. So without further ado, grab yourself a hot beverage, sit back, relax, and here's the chat. Uh, Mr. Ryan Jones. Thank you uh, very much. For, good evening. And for being here. <laughs> I, was I should say, say thank, thank you for having me here. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Mr. Ryan Jones is my uh, guest this evening on the Jazzology podcast. Um, thanks so much for, for lending me some good time and your beautiful studio, which is um, in the process of, I should say, becoming beautified. Yes. It's going to get there at some point. But um, how are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. I've be, I spent so. today piling books onto a bookshelf. Uh, as a, a sound refraction diffraction thing. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So we were just talking about that actually, because I've heard um, that uh, basically having a library around you, and not only looks cool, but it is a really great way to sequester the sound in the studio, which people who aren't, say, music production engineers, might not realise. It kind of provides that cool effect, but also stops the sound from getting kind of weird and yeah. bouncing in the wrong direction. So. Um, and do you have enough books to cover your studio? I've got a load of books. Okay, cool. So it's, it's been plan to have it all the way around the studio? Oh, that might be overkill. Yeah. But I've got <laughs> enough books to do a wall of books. Yeah. Um, and not to get too nerdy, but it's actually good to just have one uh, diffused wall because sound bounces that way, goes everywhere, and then, and then has its natural reflections in the room, whereas if it's too much diffusion you lose kind of a, a perception of what shape the room is and you lose some of that room sound. So just as long as it doesn't bounce backwards and forwards off two flat walls forever. Yeah, yeah. Then, yeah. Uh, well, I find that very interesting. I'm not sure how many people are going to really <laughs> resonate with it. Yawn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Turn it off. <laughs> exactly. But if I'm ever building a studio, I know who to call. That's the, <laughs> yeah, Otticus. Um, but uh, we're here in Truro in Cornwall, uh-huh. um, which I believe you were born in Perrinporth? I was born in Trillisk, but I'm from Perrinporth, yeah. Trillisk is just down the road near... It's in Truro. Oh, it's, it's, it's in Truro. Trillisk is the, the local hospital. Oh, right, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, but you grew up in Perrinporth, is I that did, right? yes. And what, that's, have you always been around the Cornwall area, or did Ye- you yeah. away, come back? My folks so? moved down in the 70s um, from Sheffield and Leicester, Okay. and then... I arrived in the early 80s um, and I've been here ever since. Yeah, so my mother is also from Sheffield, so we have... Ah, no way! Yeah, yeah. So my mother grew up in Sheffield and we moved down to the Midlands, actually, and then I slowly floated down this way 
at least in the summers. But yeah. I'm not going to call myself a Cornwall native by any means. So, uh, Ryan Jones, you are a singer-songwriter. You are a music producer. Is that fair to say? Yeah, you I guess so. Yeah. Man of many talents. Man of many projects. So we will cover a few of them tonight. Uh-huh. Um, but what I'd really like to know is a bit more about your musical history. Like, how did it start? What sort of, what was it like? growing up as a music as a musician wanting to do music in Cornwall and then sort of how's it evolved over the years if sure give us a quick preview that'd be great well I guess um it came from my parents who both grew up with you know not much opportunity in where they came from so they decided that they were going to scrimp and save and I was going to have piano lessons and uh, this was a disaster because all of my friends were playing football. Yeah. <laughs> and I used to literally look out of the window at my friends playing football whilst having piano lessons from Miss Chapman's house when I was age 11. And my friends would be in the park. And I would think that... Ah. She, she was one of those old school piano teachers with a ruler or a baton. And when your <laughs> finger positions weren't right, you'd get whipped on the back of the hands. Yeah. So I, I diligently satisfied my parents... Uh, social mobility desires <laughs> that they wanted me to be to rise up through the classes and I did the piano lessons yeah. begrudgingly begrudgingly and yeah. watch my friends play football on a Wednesday yeah I mean, it was only for half an hour but that half an hour was oh, why yeah. why oh, can't I do something kind of reminds me of my piano lessons as well right. actually <laughs> <laughs> maybe everyone went through that phase and then I I managed to get out of it by secondary school. I found a reason that I shouldn't be doing piano lessons and I went back to living my own free life of doing whatever a 13-year-old did back in those days. And it was when I was in a detention, a music detention, for those plastic beaters that used to get a real good trajectory on them. I threw the plastic beater, it acted as a flight and you could fire them across the sports hall, I remember wanged a plastic beater these little plastic drumsticks yeah, oh yeah 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 and it bombed down I clocked someone on the back of the head with it and uh, the teacher saw it and I was in detention and I was sat there in that music room with a, a girl from a couple of years above me and I was nervous and she was one of those girls who's got a boyfriend who's older than everyone at school <laughs> and she is cool and swaggery and she just nonchalantly looked at me and sort of rolled her eyes and carried on writing out the phone book or whatever we had to do back then and the teacher left and I out of nerves flipped open the piano lid and I just started playing a a pentatonic scale and started noodling around with some blues and I didn't even think that she would be interested in me or not interested in me but interested in what I was doing and I looked around and she was watching me Uh. nerves (laughs) she went and she came and sat up next to me and she went wow you're really good. You're amazing. <laughs> I'm amazing. I didn't the, even know that re- people like the you reason spoke. to do music yeah. was born. <laughs> it was. I've tried to. I mean, I've told people in the past about this deep desire to express through music, and it's and just the, chicks. the reality it's just chicks. was at 13 years old when a girl who by rights shouldn't speak to a, a year eight or year seven or wherever yeah. I was told me that I was awesome. I was like, this is not something that I can overlook. This, wow. I'm going to have to look into this further. So I chatted to a few of my friends who were in a band and said, I play the piano. Do you want a piano player? And they went, no. 
kind of sucks, man. <laughs> We're in a rock band. It was grunge. It was yeah. the tail end of Nirvana. Yeah. And they didn't want a piano player. What? Yeah. They went, but we need a guitarist. Can you play the guitar? And at the spur of the moment, I went, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad had a mate who was the chef where he worked. My dad was the head chef and this guy was the assistant chef. He said, you play the guitar, don't you, Richie? And Richie went, yeah, I play the guitar. I mean, where, where would I get a guitar amp? And Richie went, oh, you have this. I've played it for years. I get my dad. It's this. <laughs> the Pro-Amp. Oh, wow. From Richie Stroud. Strauss, I can't remember. Yeah. And it came to live with us, and I took it to band practice, and everyone had these solid-state amps, which were... Yeah. Awful sounding. Yeah. And Richie had given me this old valve amp, which yeah. is uh, based on an old Viper. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I had learned a couple of chords on the guitar, but because the amp sounded so nice, everyone else was much better at the guitar or the bass than me. Yeah. But because the amp was so sweet sounding compared to what everyone was playing at the time, I played a couple of choice chords and they went, Whoa, man, yeah, you're, you're the rhythm player. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. I'm the rhythm player. And that was it. So, wow. This is almost like, you know, poetic justice. It was the, and and this isn't this for is the, the folks back home. We didn't set that up. No. I just just was moving it out of the way from the other room and <laughs> it happened. I get the feeling that every bit of kit in here has some sort of story. Well, so yeah, we, we could just do we that. If we sit here long enough, you'd be like, this sofa, actually. <laughs> well, check out. Oh, yeah. That, that drum back there. It is. Has I'll a... tell you the story of that drum back there. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Heyman Vibrasonic kit and I bought it from a, a guy who was on a tour in the 70s and the, his mate called him because back in the 70s he was telling me they just lived on tours constantly he didn't have a house he right. was just on, from tour to tour to tour yeah. as, a, as a roadie and he spoke to his mate on the phone like just pay phone mm-hmm. what's the deal we haven't been paid for a while and the record company had gone bust, but they were keeping it on the on the quiet because they didn't mm. want all the bands to just bugger off and no one had any money. Yeah. And so they all decamped, and he decamped in Bizzo, and they yeah. nicked stuff. They were like, well, we ain't getting paid this month. So he nicked a drum kit <laughs> and some cymbals. And if the owners of these drum kits and cymbals are uh, are out there yeah. from 1971 or wherever it yeah. Whenever it was, please that would ignore be, the story. It would be amazing thing if suddenly you know you're watching a podcast and some yeah. like amazing Americana band, like, yeah. you know, I don't know, suddenly pipe up and say, you know, it's funny because our drum kit went missing in '72. Yeah, and that, and that, could be. Like, Hang on a minute, this. They, I think they were down going down to oh, I can't maybe it was called the Pink Flamingo or there was a couple of venues down or the Winter Gardens. Mm. Anyway. So he lived in a hedge for a week, he was saying. Wow. <laughs> he, uh, it was summer and he just decided that Bizzo was quite nice and there's this nice yeah. hedge. Yeah. So I lived in a hedge for a bit. And then a farmer took pity on him and gave him a bit of work and said, well, you can, you can set up camp if you like if, in this field if you come and work for me for a while. So he worked for him for a bit and one thing led to another. And when I met him, he had about a half acre allotment. And he had built this little eco shack, which you'd like. This was yes, absolutely. Out of yeah. just materials yeah. that he had scrounged. Yeah. He had a greenhouse. And at this point, in probably 2004, 2005, he had just split up with his wife. 
Um, and she had shopped him to the police because he had been growing cannabis in his greenhouse. Okay. And despite him, she had told the police that was what was happening. And he, this guy was in his, probably his late 70s, early 80s. And I think the police came around and said, we're cutting this down. Yeah. We're taking it away. You're not going to grow anymore. But you're an 80-year-old man. We're not, <laughs> we're not going to send you down for it. Please don't do it again. So that's the story he told me. Anyway. So I saw an advert in the paper. He was selling off all his old bits and bobs yeah. that he had that he, he was he didn't want anymore. Yeah. And there was a rat living in that drum. <laughs> and I thought he was joking. He went, yep, you can have the drum kit and I've got some old microphones, you can have them. He said, uh, but there's a rat living in the drum so you'll have to find it a new home. And I laughed. <laughs> he went, I ain't kidding. <laughs> he threw a tennis ball and boom hit the skin of the drum and the rat ran out of the drum and went, there you go, he's moved on. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there you go. That's the story of that kick drum. I, I'm excited for the future of that kick drum. It's great. It's, it's a lovely sounding drum. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I bet. So some heritage. Yeah. Um, anyway, so to just slowly pull it back to you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so we've, we've got to, we are 14. Yeah, 14. You've, you've joined a band as a guitarist. And we were called The Way. The way. The way. It's a cool that name was... for a fourteen-year-old's band, I'd say. You reckon? Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I've heard worse. It's a little bit gringy. <laughs> we took ourselves very seriously. Um, we did our first gig at the White House in Panhello. It was me, Noel, nice. Canva, and Niall were in the original lineup, and um, the White House in Panhello was a place that we used to go to play pool and drink shandy at fourteen because. The two old farmers that ran the pub, they didn't care. They didn't have any customers. So yes. anyone who turned up, they were pleased to serve. Yeah. Um, we didn't push it because we were 13, 14, so we did only drink shandies. Yeah. But um, it dawned on us that we could probably do whatever we wanted there. And <laughs> yeah. we, we said to the, the owners, how's about we do our first gig here with our band? And they went, do know. How many people would come? 100, 150, right? And I went, do you think we'd be able to get served alcohol? And he went, well, you got, have you got any ID? I went, oh yeah, and everyone had like... Yeah, the NUS Photoshopped sort of ID, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not photoshopped even, but it was just scanned bits of paper yeah. laminated in the art yeah. department. There you go. Yeah. And so word got out that we were doing our first gig at school and everyone went, uh, yeah. And then word got out that we were doing our first gig and everyone was going to get served alcohol. <laughs> and it erupted. It became like one of those American teen movie oh, yeah. scenes. Yeah. And we put posters up around the school and word got out and all the all our year were going, the year above were going, the year below were going, it was it was gonna be epic. John John Tracy, he turned up with a crate of lager on his shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> it got really out of hand really quickly. And we did our first and we were it was so busy downstairs in this little basement room yeah. um, with everyone crammed in there that we couldn't get through the crowd so we ended up doing this weird kind of conga together <laughs> like I was holding on to the drummer who was holding on to the bass forcing our way through the crowd got onto the stage and we played this dreadful set of music Yeah. and it was grungy and it was bouncy and we had this um, cheap HH PA system and it erupted. It, I've never yeah. played a gig like it. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's rose-tinted glasses looking back yeah. 20 years, 30 years yeah. later. But um, 
it it was sweaty and beer going everywhere. Yeah. All our mates were hammered, yeah. and uh, it went down as the gig that started our school's love of music. Okay. And then after right. that, we went from being these sort of nerdy music types that hung around in the music room and rehearsed at lunchtime to being yeah. these shoulders back, head held high yeah. heroes. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's the way. It's the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Boys were. Alright, mate, how's it going? Yeah. And, yeah, that, that, so. I mean, I'm jealous that you managed to fill a room <laughs> on your first gig, you know, like it's. It was the I'm still it was, trying to do that. <laughs> in my mid 30s. But um, yeah, okay, cool, right. So, so that was where it began. Where um, it began. Yeah. And then it, it. There was other bands. So, Joe, who you met the other day, yeah. he was in Jude, um, and we got to know of each other because word got out oh, that was a that was a really cool gig and loads of people were talking about that and Itchy they were called at the time they changed their name to Outcast there were a bunch of surfers from St Agnes yeah. another school they put together this punky American rock band they were really cool and then there was oh no that was that was I'm mixing my bands up Itchy <laughs> Itchy was the kind of Chili Peppers one which was some other mates who were uh, Luke Toms and and uh, Martin Ballin and then Sean LaSalle's put together Outcast. Yeah. That's what they were called. And they're these this surf rock band. And we convinced our music teacher, actually our English teacher, Mr. Simpson, to put on an end of school gig. This is skipping a few years yeah. now. This is year eleven, got to the end of school, we played loads of gigs and we you could go out and we did pub gigs mm. when we were sort of fourteen, fifteen and we were making 100, 150 quid a night mm. as a bunch of kids playing and, and we had to do all the covers Yeah, but it was cool there's yeah. not much else you could do at 14, 15 to make yeah. 50 quid each yeah. on a night out Yeah, um, and then we put on Schools Out Forever which was a gig in our sports hall and invited all these other bands over and again we took that same vibe from our first gig at the White House and it arrived in our sports hall <laughs> and it was carnage that <laughs> these three really awesome teenage bands and I'm talking about the other guys not about us yeah. but I'm they, sure they felt the same way about you. maybe they did, I don't know but it was it was this eye-opening moment that wow, there's, there's a real scene down here Yeah. and somehow it got back to the guys who had just launched the Hall for Cornwall which is yeah. the local venue Okay. and they went, well we like the idea of this. We think we could sell some tickets. Yeah. How do you fancy putting this lineup on at the Hall for Cornwall for um, school leavers? Year eleven. Yeah. The, the summer started gig. Yeah. And so we did that, and we so it was rubbish Cornish pub gigs. Yeah. School assembly rooms. Yeah. Main stage at the Hall for Cornwall. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That, I've, I've found that's actually how music works. Yeah. Like, these, these big things tend to come out of the blue, you know, it's just like built upon these like very, you know, low level things and suddenly like poof, oh, okay, here we are. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So we did that and it's all been downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your dad's that was the peak and then it's yeah. slowly trickling. The high water line. Yeah. So um there's a tell me about the Hitchcock rules. So the Hitchcock rules was there was a little there was something else that happened in between that. There's a band called Eli Bowen. So right. a, a guy called Rory Joseph, he was at school with me, um, and he was in a 
he was in the band before the way, which was Sour Zero. Sour Zero. <laughs> if he ever watches this, he'll be cringing. <laughs> but yeah, Sour Zero. I used to go and watch them play down at the local pub. Yeah. And um, and he then went to New Zealand. His, his mum moved to New Zealand, and he had no choice but to go with her. Yeah. So off he went, and then it was like something out of a soap opera that age 16 and a half, 17, as soon as he managed to get a passport, he got, he worked for a summer and got a flight back to the UK and was like, let's get the band back together, man. It was like, if it had been a, if it had been a a season of of shows, that would have been season two starting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This travelled, world-weary 17-year-old comes back in. (laughs) I'm back. Yeah. So, uh, a bit and Ted, yeah, back with the guitar, <laughs> yeah, and the beard, and the, he was really good, and he yeah. still is really good. He was, he was, act, he, he was kind of the real deal, mm. which was exciting and disconcerting at the same time because mm. I was bashing out some chords and throwing my hair around and doing mm. that, but really it was all image. I wasn't mm. that interested in. I didn't know I was interested in the music at the time. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the relationship between what I was trying to say musically and what I was trying to say lyrically it was yeah. just make loud noises and jump around and make yeah. other people do the same yeah. whereas Ruri had this he really had a, a narrative and a message and an idea of what he wanted to use music for it was, yeah. the music bit was secondary yeah. to his narrative it's quite inspired at that age it I was think, to, to be that far ahead of like everybody else in that, in that respect because I think you takes a while to re- realise yeah, that, I think. Totally. I certainly wasn't there as a 17-year-old. I was still worried about all the 17-year-old things. Yeah. Not worried about my narrative and my musical expression, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was great. So, and it was, it, it was something that we couldn't articulate or really grasp, or I couldn't at 16, mm. but I knew that he was better at this mm. than I was. Mm. Didn't I quite understand why, didn't mm. know what the nuance was, but... That sound that you make and the words that go with it, they're better than the ones that I'm making and the words that go with mine. It was essentially that he spent a lot longer playing the guitar and he had a message and I just had cliches that was... And that that was something that I guess you learn at different stages in your life where you have different experiences. So that was Eli Bowen. Mm. And that went... The trajectory on that was pretty steep. Um, Mm that it went from being, oh, those guys were in that band that did the Jumpy Up and Down songs. And mm. then it was, wow, this is quite tasteful, articulate, mm. and, um, and and nuanced music. Mm. And uh, there were a few tectonic shifts with the lineup, which were um, yeah, a bit of an emotional roller coaster mm. in that the, the band split up and then rejoined minus a couple of members <laughs> in the space of a day Politics. we're going to split the band up man oh okay oh that sucks we're starting a new band you guys aren't in it <laughs> oh god asshole yeah. <laughs> so I'm yeah sure that's still how they do it even when you know, professional <laughs> yeah. bands probably do it the same way you know? yeah oh god so was that when Hitchcock Hitchcock rules started at college so right, okay. we did this We're Gonna Be Rock and Roll Stars stint with Eli Bowen where Rory moved up to London and we all went up and supported him and stayed in his flat and ate his food really. Mm. But um, he was 
go, we went into record labels with ghetto blasters playing them on. Mm. <laughs> Listen to our tape, you know, really believing that if we roll into EMI Records with our ghetto blaster, <laughs> hit play and do a dance, yeah. they're gonna totally sign us. And big, you're the next big thing. Yeah, big security guards came sort of like ushered us out with the other mediocre indie rock bands. Yeah. <laughs> out you go, twenty of these a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and. So I went back to Cornwall and one of my old school friends, I bumped into, into her whilst I was getting a pasty in Truro. <laughs> How very Cornish of me. Yeah. And she said, so what are you doing? Are you going to college? And I went, nah. She's like, you're not going to college. What are you going to do? Well, maybe I'll get a job. She's like, we're going to sign you up. You're going yeah. to college. So um, she convinced me to go to college and I got onto the music HND Mm. And I think I, I was told I don't know. They always tell you that, or you shouldn't really. You should have other qualifications to get onto this HND, but you can do on an audition exam, and then you can get in. And actually, yeah. probably that their numbers were so low that they'd let any. Yeah. <laughs> can you afford the tuition fee? Yes, you're in. <laughs> but anyway, so I felt like I was validated all of a sudden because. I passed this entrance exam and he said, oh, well, yeah, okay, you could do that then. Yeah. Um, and then I met Richie and Dan and Stu and a guy called AJ and we said, let's start a band. And it was, it was a little bit more experimental and I think I started to find my voice a little bit more yeah. as, a, as a writer. Yeah. Um, I mean, still I look back and some of those tracks are pretty cringy. But it was the first thing that, even now looking back at it, there was a reference to being an actual songwriter yeah. as opposed to being somebody who makes loud noises happen yeah, yeah, in, yeah. occasionally in tune and yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Do you, it's, how do you think that evolution happened? Was it because you, you felt like as you're you know, growing into yourself and into your own skin, you you suddenly had more to say about life and, and therefore you wanted to express yeah. it in Hitchcock rules or Well it was it was life experience mm. and and maturing. I think mm. that it was just time that being around people who are more intellectual and have more interests other than how do you fit in this social dynamic mm. which is really if you get to break it down at secondary school you're going how do I fit into the politics yeah, of, of this school environment and band makes me cooler yeah be in band yeah that's the motivation yeah. in order to be in band I need to make cool songs yeah <laughs> that sound a bit like bands that people like okay yeah. you got it. um so I think there was I was starting to figure out the relationship between a narrative in a song and the relationship between that narrative and the harmonic structure of the song sure. and that what what it meant what that music meant and what the the harmony meant and what the mode meant and, yeah. and and then I went from being this reticent annoying thinks he knows it all music student who plays four chords badly yeah. to suddenly being interested in what my music um, music theory teacher's talking about yeah. and saying, well, but why does this sound like this? Yeah. And why does it feel like this? Yeah. And then, and I was really lucky to have some great theory teachers that would be, be able to break that down for me and go, yeah. well, this is harmonically why and this is emotionally why. And, yeah. and that set me on a path to sort of understanding 
the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah. Um, and I think you need to get that, or I needed to get that. I think people like Rory didn't need to get mm. that because they already intuitively had that ability to mm. to match their emotional lilt and intention with their harmonic chord choices by just going that shape that yeah. is the emotion I'm looking for whereas yeah. I was like I know four yeah. um, and then once I had that knowledge I kind of put it into the back of my mind and then I was in a similar place to to where perhaps those those spontaneous songwriters come from because mm. I was I knew why I was doing what I was doing um, but then I could kind of forget about it and go mm. and it sounds cool um, mm. but yeah it was that was that was a big learning curve yeah and Hitchcock rules lasted for a few years yeah we, we were together early 20s mid 20s yeah we got a white transit van or white yeah. Renault Master actually and my dad helped me deck out a, a bunk seat in the back and we bought a PA system and we phoned up every single venue in the country and said can we have a gig oh, I can't pay you much yeah. fine we'll be there yeah, Thursday yeah. and we played everything from the most dreadful tiny little music um, hovels to to some pretty cool gigs yeah. and we just went round and round and round yeah. Scotland to Penzance yeah. to Milton Keynes to <laughs> and like no no thought process in yeah. the tour planning it's yeah, just yeah. Uh, it's the length of the country back to Norfolk <laughs> back up to Glasgow Back down to Manchester. Any money you three days off. Petrol, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so, and we did that for. Well, there was a bit of a, a bit of logic to it in that we, we did our tours, October, November, December sort of time. Yeah. And then we did probably another one in the spring, and then we tried to recoup what we had lost by doing the summer pub gigs in Cornwall, right. which, um, at the time were quite lucrative, and then we would try and record a record somewhere in between that, try and do an album a year or at least a couple of EPs. Yeah. Because you did, you recorded two albums, is, am I right, with um, Hitchcock, Hitchcock Rules? Yeah, we well, actually recorded... Uh, <coughs> two. We recorded two albums, a, like a double EP pack, which was another album, mm. but we just split it into two EPs. And then we recorded... An, an album that we never released, which actually I've been mixing over the last oh, right. couple of couple of weeks. Um, it was the last one that we recorded yeah. before one thing led to another, and we decided to call it a day. Well, we, we never actually decided to call it a day. We just stopped booking gigs and yeah. hanging out. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but um, it, it just other stuff started getting getting in the way of what we were doing, and yeah. I think everyone was tired. Yeah. Um, but there is a, a really good record that we recorded on one of those Behringer eighty eight thousand, yeah, the, like the cheapest um, A to D converter you yeah, could get at yeah. the time. It was sixty quid, yeah. and yeah, it's one argument for anyone who's setting up a home studio. I'm listening to it through thousands of pounds worth of speakers now, going sounds absolutely fine yeah. <laughs> I can't tell the difference between the thousands of pounds worth of preamps that other stuff is recorded through yeah. and maybe it's just my ears yeah, yeah very possibly but I'm listening to it going it sounds really good it's got a vibe and it's it's got a it's, yeah it works yeah. what was the recording process like back then for you guys oh, it was amazing so we had 
a um, we we had this house that we were sharing, mm. and we ran a multi-core, an eight-channel multi-core up mm. through the loft, and then dropped it down into our living room, which had a piano in it, a drum kit, and then my bedroom was the control room where I had that DDA desk, that huge, great big, oh, yeah. thirty-two-channel old. Um, oh wow! Yeah. Uh, What's it? Well, it's made by DDA. Who is that? They were before they became Midas, I think. Right. Um, and a Pentium 2 computer and Cubase 3 and <laughs> this 88,000 uh, A to D converter. Yeah. Which. And yeah, we. I mean, you know, a home studio, basically. It was a home studio, yeah. yeah. I mean, and then we had a. Quite, quite, a, quite a sort of technologically advanced home studio. Yeah, for the. Effectively. 2000. <laughs> yeah. So. And we. <clears throat> We had a couple of 58s and a D D112 and a mm. and a couple of 57s and some groove tube overheads. That's that it. Is. And yeah, we didn't need anything else. Yeah. And for all the I've worked for 20 years since and I've saved up and I've started to pay off mortgages and and that kind of stuff and it's you I can afford to buy some kit now and I I really can't capture that same sound that yeah. we got with the yeah. two fifty-pound groove tubes and a yeah. fifty-seven on a snare yeah. drum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, There's something said about the the raw authenticity of of early records in many ways. Yeah, you know, and I think you can you can assume that more money equals better quality, and therefore people are going to want to listen to it more. But I, there's something magic about totally. Rusty, you know, early absolutely. Records. And I'm if you made a plug-in called Shit microphone. Crustify. 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 Yeah. Let's do Crustify. Yeah. So it turns your thousand pound condenser microphone into a, a beat up, yeah. intermittently <laughs> out of phase 57. Or not even a 57, mm. one of those sort of like Behringer versions. There would be people out there that would listen to that and go, oh, listen, listen, to, the, listen to the harmonic distortion yeah. on that mic. Yeah, yeah. And I would probably be one of them. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, so it just it had some magic to it, um, and I would hit record and go go. Mm. <laughs> Drummer would do. We'd all record together initially, through even if it just meant one mic on every instrument, yeah. and then we'd get a headphone mixed back to and track it over the top of it. So the drummer would then play back to his drum track, yeah. and then the bass player would overdub his bass part and would overdub everything for the separation. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. Record done. Nice. And then we would spend months and months painstakingly going through guitar solos, which really only it was the first take used pretty much every time. Yeah. But then <laughs> try it like this. Try it with turn the amp upside down. Put yeah. put the guitar amp upside down and the mic upside down. No, try it the other way. And we would just experiment with <laughs> all this stupid stuff. And then yeah. we go, first one sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the way I record now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, um, so eventually, Hitchcock rules subsided. Yeah. Subsided. Ceremoniously, yeah. uh, it sounds things. And then I've I I heard of um, was it Grey Dog? Grey Dog. Yeah. Grey Dog. So was this that the next step. This well, it wasn't the next step. Grey Dog was, I think, if I'm going to be honest, I was getting not tired of the band, but just tired of being in the same loop with the mm. Hitchcock Rules um, 
and I'd, I, I thought I wanted to be a folk singer-songwriter, mm. and I don't think I did, but I, <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. The drummer was all about the rock and roll, and listening back to those recordings, he's awesome, man. The, yeah. the drum tracks, it, yeah. but he was a bit older than us, and he was a bit more, he's a bit wiser, yeah. and I was more faddy, and I'd yeah. be like, no, this is, it. this is where we need to take it, and he'd be like, uh, well, I don't know if that's our sound. I think we <laughs> there are bands that do that, and we could become a folk band, but yeah. do this thing at the moment, and that's yeah. what people want. Just, no, no, I want to be a folk band. Yeah. So I sort of chased my tail a little bit. I wrote this whole album of folk songs that I never released, yeah. and then um, and then I met Grey Dog down the pub, right. um, and they were a local guy called Tom Edivine who was a singer-songwriter and uh, a guy called Matt Upshur who mm. was also a singer-songwriter and a guy called Chrisso who was playing the bass at the time mm. but turns out was an awesome drummer mm. and by this point I was doing some bookings for um, the Hitchcock Rules had played at the Eden Sessions mm. and a lady called Jane Montague who ran the Eden Sessions or produced the Eden Sessions I had goaded her into letting me book local artists because okay. I'd said, yeah. oh, it's all about grassroots music. And she'd gone, yeah, man, it's all about grassroots music. <laughs> I, t- I totally agree. Because she had given us this opportunity to play with, I think it was the Kaiser Chiefs as a yeah. support act. And I was then saying that, well, it's brilliant that you're endorsing local musicians. And finally, because yeah. Eden was renowned as being one of these places that John Empson, who's the booking agent, would bring down the labels. Yeah. like acts that like they have the main act and then they would go well, we've got these subsidiary acts that yeah. we'd like to get some exposure let's put them on and a lot of the local bands didn't really get a look in so I feeling like I was an ambassador for musicians yeah. in Cornwall I said wow it's great that you're supporting the local acts Jane and she was like yeah I am I went does that mean you're going to do it more often she went yep I am as long as I could get a, a you know, just a, someone to do a bit of the legwork I would I'd love to put more local acts on I really want to support the local scene I went great brilliant I'll do it for you and she went um and I said give me give me a little budget and I will put on local acts on a second stage at the Eden Project and then yeah. you can make a day of it okay okay I could work so she gave me a budget and she gave me a, an email address that looked official and she said go and book local acts yeah. and coordinate the label acts as well and we'll have a second stage and make it a bit of a festival vibe yeah. so I kind of fancy myself as this this linchpin figure I've got yeah. I, can, I can get gigs at the Eden sessions yeah. I think I could probably be a music manager I know how this stuff works yeah. and I started to get probably a little bit above my station drunk on power drunk on power <laughs> yeah. and it was all through other people giving me opportunities because they were sure. like oh look yeah. how look how enthusiastic he is yeah. bless him yeah. um, so I said to Grey Dog why don't I manage you and they were right. they were like uh, who are you yeah. went, so let's make it I had, I've got this little studio at my house yeah. it's pretty ropey but we could make a record there and I've got some links with the Eden Project, we could probably get a gig on mm. at the Eden Project. And they were like, well, you can get us tickets for some of the Eden gigs, that's great. We're, we're in, we're sold yeah. on that. Yeah. So they let me produce their tracks. Um, and t- I, we were looking for a drummer, and then Chriso, who's this super cool Australian guy, went, oh, yeah, I'll, 
I, I actually play the drums, mate. Um, <laughs> I could do that if you want. It's just this bugger carrying drums around. I thought bass would be easier. Yeah. He had an accordion <laughs> as well, so I was looking for anything other than yeah. a drum kit, so I didn't have to drag yeah. it around. Yeah. Um, so he is a, a really groovy feel drummer. Yeah. Um, and it just recorded itself. Yeah. So we went through and we recorded the whole record in the garden because it was a lovely sunny day. So we set up outside oh, wow. and we were, we went through, mic'd everything up, but like I was saying, do, we did the play through outside to get this cool little vibe. Yeah. Um, and then I used those tracks to as guide tracks to put clicks to and, and re-record everything inside. Mm. But there's this moment, there's a, a guy up the road who's got a load of basset hounds Mm. Um, and this, a siren came through town mm. the police car came through town and the hounds started howling along to the sirens <laughs> and there's this really cool moment at the start of the album where you hear in the background from the garden recording <laughs> nice. of these dogs howling and Tom thought it was hilarious and he's like great dog, it's great uh, dog <laughs> and, um, they can be really special moments in yeah. when you get a bit of like accidental ambient noise and you yeah. like, that sounds really cool we put, that, like, put that on the record yeah well, we made it the opening track um, <laughs> nice. and it was mega so we yeah. had this this awesome first album and I took it to Jane at the Eden Project mm. and went Jane what do you think of this and Jane's background is in doing a bit of everything, but she's marketing, music management. Um, and she went, did you record this? I went, yeah. Awesome. I love it. Get these guys on every session. Get them on as much as you can. <laughs> nice. Really cool. We're going to really push them. And, uh, yeah, she was handing out CDs to all the bands for us. And she became a... Sweet. We actually asked her if she wanted to manage us. And she went, no. Yeah, <laughs> but I'll look after you. Yeah, she was yeah. too busy. But um, yeah, she she was helping get all this this stuff together for us, and it was going really well. Yeah, and and this was around what this was. Um, I reckon two thousand and eight, two thousand seven, two thousand and eight, and there was other stuff going on as well. I was doing bookings for Beach Breaks Live Festival. Right. Um, which was another, there was a there was a girl I was madly in love with at the time and I wanted to go to London so that I could surreptitiously happen to be in the same bar as her while she was at university. And, uh, and so this was, yeah, this was would have been about 2006 when I, I met Ian and Celia. Yeah. And Hugo who and Evo Sound, who were doing the PA at the... Eden Project yeah. also doing the, the production for Beach Breaks Live nice. and they said oh well Ian and Celia are driving back up to London that you can catch a ride with them like, brilliant cool. so I met Ian and Celia and I set off being a hitchhiker and by the time we got to London I was managing two stages and helping them <laughs> get planning permission oh, <laughs> wow. so uh, right well, and then we had this ongoing battle because Ian and Celia would have been 21, 22. Yeah. They were, I mean, by my standards now, they're youngsters. Yeah. But they'd invested all of this money yeah. and got all this sponsorship to put together this student festival. Yeah. Um, and they were battling against the council to get licenses. Right. And it was yeah. the first time doing this whole thing. So Ian would come down to Cornwall, stay at my house, unannounced, or yeah. it, you just, there'd be a knock at the door at two in the morning. 
hello mate, how's it going? Uh, can I stay for a bit? Yeah, fine. <laughs> and that was kind of the vibe at my place. It was yeah. people would turn up from because we used it as a bit of a recording yeah. studio as well. And then you'd have musicians who would have recorded there a year ago, and they'd be in Paramport and go, oh, go and see, yeah. see what those boys are up to. Yeah. Um, so it, it became the base of operations for Beach Breaks Live in right. Cornwall, and we were trying to get these festivals off the ground. Yeah. And then Grey Dog ended up obviously playing yeah. those as well. Um, Does Grey Dog, it sounds like Grey Dog ended up doing quite a lot of fairly big festival slots in uh, Cornwall and Devon. But it, did, did it ever expand outside the West Country or...? No, well, yes, we did, we did do a lot of the Beach Breaks festivals. Mm. So they all had proper jobs, which was pretty a big drawback. Yeah, but, and because, a bit time-limited. Yeah, and yeah. none of them were... I mean, they were very musical, but they weren't... They didn't really identify as that, that being their core thing. That right. Tom and Matt were both PE teachers, and uh, Chris O was gardening. He was mm. running his gardening business, and music was something that was a bit of a hobby. But it gave mm. it this lovely light airiness, mm. as opposed to everyone I'd worked with before was music is life. Yeah, this yeah. Is, this is, don't look at anything else. Yeah, what yeah. do you mean you're you're going to go on a bike ride? Yeah. No, practice <laughs> the guitar, and yeah. um, so. That was a bit of a drawback. I mean, there were yeah. there were times when I had to blag Matt out of work in order to come and play festivals. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I I once wrote a letter to his school congratulating him on the award that he had won for um, raising awareness of music and mental health and how music can support mental health, and that mm. I wanted to be him to be part of this symposium that was taking place coincidentally where Beach Breaks Live was happening and we were playing the main <laughs> stage and that uh, as an advocate for the school that he worked at at the time yeah, yeah. we would love it if he could join us yeah, um, yeah. to give his insight yeah. and this flattery went to the, the head teacher who went oh that's wonderful that you're doing this extracurricular stuff we would we would be honoured if you could go and represent us at this symposium Excellent. for <laughs> music and mental health and well-being it's like yep yeah. alright <laughs> Because, I mean, Grey Dog ended up, I presume through some some, some festival support slots, but ended up supporting some big names like Paolo Nettini and yeah. Flaming Lips. And yeah, and that was all through the Eden Sessions. That was all through Jane. Oh, I see, right. So that was at the Eden Sessions. That Pretty they, much right. exclusively at the Eden Sessions. Yeah. But um, it was... There was some... Uh, we played some main stage slots at Beach Breaks, and it was always so well received, mm. like, out of any band that I've ever played in. Musically, there wasn't much going on, but it had this brass section. Mm. There's a sort of quite a New Orleans vibe brass section mm. to it, and everything was simple and stripped down. Mm. Lyrically, it was fantastic. Mm. Um, harmonically, it was fantastic. Matt was mm. a fantastic songwriter, mm -hmm. and it, yeah, it always swaggered. Um, yeah. And as so you just mentioned, there you you played in the band as well. Yeah. So what were you what were you playing in the band? I was playing bass. In the bass, right? So was that yeah? So maybe maybe I, I glossed over that slightly, but so Chriso was the bass player, but then initially you moved him to the drums. Yeah. You slotted in on bass. Yeah. And then so you were sort of like a player manager. We well, yeah, I didn't really do much managing. I booked no. some gigs. And were you songwriting for the band as well? No. Right, uh, okay. No, no. There was all Matt's songs apart from one which Tom wrote. Um, 
and I did we did start to I did start to write a few songs for the band but then it just was the wrong vibe yeah um, and it didn't need it the, yeah. it was yeah, yeah. it was a little bit too much I did I was in danger of going right let's make it my band and yeah, that, yeah, I yeah. think that's what it was about it was yeah, sure it was all about celebrating what those guys were doing and I mm slotted in on the bass mm. but the plan was always to get a different bass player in um, okay. and then it never happened yeah I just so stuck what, with what, what so it sounds to me like it sort of slowly again subsided well no it didn't it was a ca- catastrophic ending so oh, right. Matt suffered from epilepsy oh. um, and he was also a fantastic surfer and sportsman yeah and he went surfing and he had a, an unexpected seizure that he normally surfed with. He, he was surfing with someone, but they lost sight of him yeah. and he, he died at sea. Um, wow. And, but Grey Dog do continue to do sort of, I don't, don't want to call them ceremonial gigs, but mm. we've not changed the set since. Mm. And once or twice a year we'll wheel out uh, Tom Edivine and mm. remind him how to play a C on a guitar <laughs> and uh, and bring out the brass players and yeah. do a gig and it still sounds yeah. fantastic uh, it doesn't have the same vibe yeah, yeah. without Matt no, um, yeah. and we kind of agreed that he was the songwriter and yeah. we wouldn't continue to write without him yeah. Um, but yeah it was it was one of those bands that could have been something really special yeah um, and it still is something really special. We should, the album's called Maps, and I think it's yeah. available on Spotify and okay. yeah. places. Yeah, check it out. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to. I, I was trying to find stuff uh, on Spotify from you as a solo artist, which, I, as far as I can work out, is impossible. Yeah, I don't have anything. But, um, but I, I, yeah, I, I didn't go around to, to sort of checking up on all the previous bands as well, but I will. I'll check out Grey Dog. Yeah, Grey Dog were a, a standout one. And me as a solo artist, I... I made, I've got a couple of albums worth of solo tracks, mm. and I think that experience with the Hitchcock rules of realizing what you, how many plates you need to spin, to put a record out, mm. and uh, I mean to put a record out, and that period of time it was still CD pressing time, sure, and that's going to cost two or three grand to put out a thousand CDs, yeah, once you paid for some artwork and you've. Mm. You've pressed it to to CD and and done a bit of marketing, and then you've got to tour that as well, mm. and then you've got to get the radio, and you've got to line it up in the right order, and then mm. you've got to get it on the streaming sites, mm. and I, I just I couldn't see me being being able to make it work, yeah. and then I kind of just I love recording it, yeah. and there's a good two albums worth of so- songs if not more. Yeah. Um, they were completely finished and mastered and ready to put yeah. out if you wanted to and I kind of just went oh, I, can't, I don't have the energy to do it <laughs> I don't oh, to do it properly yeah. I mean I could have just put it out as a if anyone discovers this you yeah. can listen to it but I, I don't know is there still hope? They could, well they might appear at some in point the, yeah, yeah. In, this, in this modern age where the barriers for entry have, yeah have no, I mean, totally I guess, I guess I've, I've spoken to some people on this podcast who who are kind of the opinion I you sort of slightly suggesting it as well which is that they don't want to do anything unless they're going all in yeah know? so and there are other people who take the opinion of you know I just it throw out. everything out there and just if something comes of it then great 
Um, but I suppose there's always going to be that element, isn't it, that where you sit on that spectrum of. Um, yeah, I'm definitely on the chuck it out there now. Um, yeah. It's part of the spectrum, but because all that stuff was recorded 10, 12, 13 years ago, yeah. and I, I don't know how I, I just it's just fallen to the back of my mind, and I've gone worse. Sure. Yeah. And part of building this place has been when I when I mean when we first got that moved here. Yeah. I was like, well, I could do some recording, yeah. but and then there's a clock that ticks over there, and you go, oh, I'll just turn the batteries out of that, and go. Yeah. And I, oh, kids are up. Okay, I'll just wait yeah. for half an hour and get them back to sleep. Yeah. Then I'm going to do some recorder. Oh, the wood burners making a ticking sound. Why is, it, <laughs> why is that doing it? And it's like, I can, and I was so privileged at number ten. That's what yeah. the old house was called. Yeah. That it was this quiet place where people slept until 11 o'clock in the morning and they stayed yeah. up all night but were happy to be quiet whilst you were recording and, yeah, yeah. and it was like, wow you didn't that doesn't really exist yeah. in the yeah. world yeah so i i was spoiled a little bit and whenever i'd record things in the house there'd be a dog that would wander in or a cat or yeah, uh, sure. a child or a, a wife or yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. all of these annoyances in your life and and it was so I, I set my my mind to a part partly building the studio was mm. me being a bit grumpy mm. whenever Kate would say why don't you record a record because I can't because it's too noisy and there's too much stuff going yeah. on and I can't every time I set my stuff up you moan at me and tell me to pack it down again she's like yeah. oh it's in our living room yeah well yeah. maybe I'll just build myself a recording studio yeah and then that like childish strop that I'd have yeah. of maybe I'd just build myself a recording studio it became a, a more of a possibility yeah. and then she'd say why don't you just build yourself build yourself a recording studio yeah. maybe I will yeah. and I applied for planning permission expecting to be told now and they went yeah it's fine you can build one there amazing so, oh okay well, I can't afford it Yeah. and then the kid was like well you don't do anything during the day you gig, a, gig every night yeah. and that's great but you drop the kids to school at 9 o'clock and then you've got the whole day free why don't you just build it mm. I think she was expecting me to build a small wooden shack in the garden yeah. where I could put my stuff it's fairly voluminous I mean you know, it's, <laughs> it's, a old, it's a big old thing yeah, yeah. It's like well and it was it's my brother actually who's an engineer he said apply for something really big they'll say no and then scale it down and then they'll say yes so I was like okay that sounds logical so we applied for something really big and I went yeah it's fine in the middle of nowhere no one cares <laughs> yeah. oh yeah. So I ended up having to build it. Yeah. Um, I think it's fab. It's a great, it's an exciting project. And I think even just looking at the gear you have around, it's going to be a really cool, um, groovy studio to you. And I think, uh, I mean, I, I, we, we discussed a little bit before we started this podcast. I asked you, what's your sort of grand plans for the place? And I kind of like the fact that you don't really know yet. Well, you know, it's so. definitely not to record bands. I know yeah. that sounds like the death knoll for a recording studio yeah. but there's a studio cube recording studios that is incredible yeah. and that if you're in a band that is where you want to go and record sure. um i want to use this for co-writing i'd like yeah. to get as many different musicians who are on the circuit to come mm. and do some writing do a day of yeah. co-writing or a week of co-writing um and that's something that i could get behind and mix people's tracks and put them out and yeah, yeah. have that yeah. probably a similar kind of I, I want to do it because I 
I get a different energy from different musicians and yeah. and it, it creates different outputs. Yeah. Yeah. But much about doing this podcast that you're you're sharing what you do with yeah. with all these different people who are joining you on the podcast. Yeah. In the same way, I think if I'm this central point with a hundred different artists over the course of ten years who we write together in a set space, maybe that is a catalyst in itself mm. to mm. to help boost those careers and turn mm. mm. me into maybe a, I'd quite like to be a co-writer with different artists. Yeah. So that's that's my plan. That it's not to record whoever can afford to come and record yeah. a record here yeah. and then go through the process of micing up the drums, yeah. putting the guitar track down. It's yeah. to find bits of work that I'm really genuinely passionate about and go, yeah. right, how can we make this yeah. awesome? Yeah. That I, I, I think that's a really good, like it's almost like it's a, it's a canvas yeah. onto which you can creatively paint as it were. Yeah. And um, yeah, I really like that. And I think what's clear about, you know, doing a bit of research on you is that you, um, historically and also moving forward, um, and maybe we'll talk about that in a minute, is that you really are a bit of a linchpin in the Cornish music scene and you're really very passionate about that. And I think um, inevitably what this place will become is is your passion for connecting musicians and music in Cornwall yeah. will, will be centralised here. And uh, I think that's a really it's a really powerful thing. I think it's got a great future. But yeah, oh, I hope so. And I think it's not as philanthropic as it sounds that... I, I was talking to Joe, who you worked with last night Winter Mountain Winter Mountain and my Friday and Saturday night and my Thursday and my Wednesday and my Sunday night for the last 20 years has been playing music in a pub Mm. or a a venue or a festival wherever it wherever it might be Um, and my working day has been getting together with musicians and making a record and figuring out how to make cool Mm. sounds Mm. and so pretty much my entire social life revolves around making music or playing music in a in a live setting. Mm. Yeah. So I think having a space to do that from, as much as I do support different musicians and their careers and try to yeah. be as as supportive as possible, that it's it is a social activity sure. as well. It's it's yeah. what I've always done. Yeah. And but what I was saying is that we don't have those nights out as musicians. You don't have those yeah. drunken nights out with your mate down yeah. the pub or the cinema or that every night you're at the pub and it is social, but it's not, you don't go to the birthday parties and you don't go to the yeah. the anniversary parties or the celebrations because are you coming You are you coming to uh, our engagement party? Oh, sorry, dude, I've got a gig that night. But yeah. coincidentally, if you happen to be at the tap house, yeah. that's where I'll be. Yeah. Oh, I know, somewhere else. And, over time, yeah. they're still your friends, but you stop getting invited to those yeah. those social events sure. because I can't, can't. He's gigging. It's a yeah. Friday night, Saturday yeah. night. No way he's going to not have a gig. So it just by default, my friendship group is is Al Jones and it's sure. Joe Francis and it's Rory and it's it's the guys who were on those gigs together and yeah. when they need a standing bass player or guitarist or yeah. piano player, that's me. And then you have some pints afterwards and yeah. and you're in rehearsals together so it's a a social thing yeah, yeah. essentially I've built my own pub yeah <laughs> <laughs> well 
Or maybe they will be in bar at some Well, point. it wouldn't be a bad idea. I do yeah. quite like the idea. I made cider last year. We've got some oh, some yeah. apple trees. Oh, yeah. I could see this stuff. Cider in a studio is going to go hand in hand. Yeah, well, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. It didn't work, though. I've made vinegar. Okay. The, <laughs> yeah. And this, I had apple, a cider-making kit. Yeah. And you had the choice of making natural cider using the natural yeasts, and you put it all yeah. in there, and you hope that the natural yeasts creates the cider magic yeah. or you put in the artificial yeasts and you will get cider but it will be a chemical based yeah. cider thing sure. so I, being a hippie I was like yeah natural yeast yeah. it's going to work this is just I believe in you <laughs> and the, the little drum of cider sat underneath the worktop and Kate keeps looking at it again how long do we have to wait until we get the cider? <laughs> oh, six months We've got to wait six months for natural cider to at least okay yeah. It's going to be vinegar. I'm like, no, it's not. Leaving it. Stop, <laughs> stop souring my, my cider. And it was my birthday was the dates that we decided was going to be the, yeah. d- is it cider or cider or no? Yeah. And uh, out came this frothy mess. Yeah. And the kids were like, Dad, don't drink it. Don't drink it. <laughs> <laughs> but see, you got over the hump then. You got the, the worst first batch, and now that's it. You can just improve the recipe. Yeah. And slowly, it's going to become. Well, I think maybe Truro Studios cider idea, press. Cider press. Yeah. Um, I think I need to do some research because my recipe is get apples, squish them, put them in cask. Yeah. Wait for six months and see if yeah. cider comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think maybe there's more to it than that. Or you just start selling vinegar. That's vinegar's it. great. <laughs> I've used the vinegar. And again, the kids and Kate are afraid of what I've created because yeah. the, pr- the amount of pressure that it comes out. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, the pressure and builds up, yeah. Yeah. Sure, yeah, and it's pretty hideous looking stuff. I'm like, do mm. not put that in any cooking. <laughs> oh, well. Everything, every opportunity I get to put a bit of cider vinegar into yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's nice vinegar. Yeah, yeah. It's not cider. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, I think... Um, as is uh, customary with my podcast, at some point I ask some that my guests to play a tune for us. Okay. And I would love for you to play a tune. And I think you're going to play your song Ghostwriter. Yeah. And I love, before you pick the guitar up to play it, um, I I love the song. I've, I've listened to it many times. I first heard it on the Nub Sessions, which is something, is a, is a new project which you're working on with uh, a Cornish-based team. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, and I, I don't know if you have a sort of you know a little story behind the song, what, or, or yeah. maybe when it was written. Is it an old song of yours? Or? So it's maybe six or seven years old, which mm. most people would say is an old song, but I'd say it's probably quite recent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, a lot, of, I've been writing a lot more on the piano recently, okay. so a lot of my guitar songs are um, that's sort of like the last batch of guitar songs that I wrote. Yeah. And it is about those, that idea of a, of a ghostwriter, of yeah. somebody who can come in and fill in the otherwise mundane details of, of your existence and inspire something more exciting. Yeah. And it's about those, those characters, those disastrous characters that you can look at in your, with your sensible hat on and go, yeah. wow. Yeah. Rock and roll. You like one of the yeah, lines yeah. is um, you like the Stones. That whole idea of that there's yeah. people who like the Beatles and there's people who like the Stones, yeah. or the double meaning of you like the, the hard things, the Stones, yeah. the damage, the yeah. and um, you got broken bones. And th- but that idea that 
if you like the Beatles, you're a, you, you are quite tame. If you like yeah. the Rolling Stones, you Hell's Angels. And you're, you're wild. You're a bit wild. Yeah, yeah. And um, and it's that sitting down with one of these femme fatale characters mm. and saying, just give me these stories. Yeah. And as a as a writer and a human being, yeah. inspire me with this dark CD, inspiring, exciting. Yeah other world this let me live vicariously through you Amazing. by proxy that yeah. so that it's, it's about that and it's about okay. um how inspirational that can be and dangerous cool all right play it. love to hear it <laughs> right well obviously i have heard it before but everyone else would love to hear it i'm sure well yeah i'd like to praise it with um i've not played it since the nub sessions <laughs>
like the stones You got broken bones Pour it out, baby in the words I forgot. <laughs> hey, I mean, you know, for a start, I'd like to say I'm a massive fan of your guitar. <laughs> oh yeah, it's great, isn't it? Lovely vintage Martin there, isn't it? This is... Beautiful. That's, that's exactly the size of Martin that I want. I have a, a, a little Martin, I have a D41, and I need that size. So. Andy from Modern Music, I'd always bought cheap guitars, and he had, I went in one day and I said, Andy, I've got a guitar, I need a new guitar, my, my neck's bowed and, yeah. and to the point of view, it was cheaper to buy a new guitar than have it reset up. Sure. It was like those kind of guitars, are like a Yamaha FG or yeah. second hand and Andy went, oh, Ryan, of course I'll sell you a cheap guitar but you've been buying guitars off me for 20 years now mate and I feel like you're worth it. You're worth a bit more. <laughs> yeah. I said, look, take this one. I said, just take it. Don't give me any money. Just take it. It's like, no, I can't do that, Andy. He's like, just take it. Are you going to pay for it eventually? Either bring it back in six weeks' time and tell me you don't want a nice guitar or save up some cash and I'll do it for you at what I buy it, buy it in for. And I was like, really? He says, yeah. yes. You can't play crap guitars anymore. Yeah. You've got to a point you're playing... The pavilions to 400 people yeah. and you're playing some festival stages and it's embarrassing yeah. <laughs> just embarrassing so what a great guy yeah fi me that. 500 quid it was wow and i played it on the first gig with the hitchcock That's rules and i went oh it's really nice yeah and it was and i i went back to him about three days later and I said go on andy how much do you want for your guitar and he went 500 quid That's what i bought it for and these ones, there was an embargo, and this is something I later found out that there's, it's a, a type of Brazilian mahogany, um, right. apparently, this is, someone told me this. And the first batch used this really nice Brazilian mahogany, and then there was an embargo from the US on Brazil to use this particular type of Brazilian mahogany, which was an aged mahogany that had been sat around in Martin's... Right. Um, store yard for ages so they stopped using it stopped being allowed to make it and export it so they use a different type of mahogany mm. which doesn't sound the same because mm. Ruri he borrowed this guitar to go and do some gigs with as a second guitar and went oh, I love yeah. it Yeah. where do I buy one and he yeah. went out and bought one for a, a grand um, and he hated it yeah. he sold it about yeah. six weeks later because it didn't sound the same yeah and it's yes. It's, it's really, it's really rich. It almost it sounds, you know, it sounds almost to me a bit more like a um, a vintage Gibson because right. Martin for me they're always quite bright sounding. But I think maybe because of the, the mahogany. Brazilian mahogany, yeah. it's got more of a kind of old school yeah. Gibson sound to it. Sure. Yeah, very cool, very nice. And I also okay. love the song. I mean, I, I was getting real um, like Neil Young vibes. Oh, cool. It's, uh, it's really cool. Yeah, I really like that song. Great. Well, I should. And I, try and I hope it. one day, Ryan, to hear that recorded. Not only recorded, but released. Somewhere. Yeah, I will. Great. And that's part of the reason I built this 
whole place is that I I need a space to work in, and but the thing is, is I I now work with a lot of young people, and so I work for Cornwall Music Education Hub yeah. and Cornwall Music Service Trust and Carefree and a bunch of different organisations and up until the whole COVID thing, Falmouth University, mm. and some of the stuff we do is convincing, first of all, getting kids to identify as musicians, mm. and then secondly, to um, to get them to start composing. Yeah. And and then one of the one of the tricks up our sleeve is that they'll come up with a top line melody and some chords and some lyrics, and then I'll bring it back here and spend a, a half a day on turning it into a track and then yeah. I'll bring it back the, the next week when I've got a session with them and go, oh, I've worked on your song and they'll go, oh yeah, expect a, an acoustic guitar part and there's a full production with a string section and a, oh, and they go, oh my God, it sounds yeah. amazing. Yeah. And then hopefully that's enough to give them the bug yeah. and make them go, yeah, yeah. Oh, I want to do another yeah. one. Um, and yeah. it's a free service. It's not like yeah. the Music Hub is just about inspiring young people to engage yeah. with music, especially those that aren't the Tarquins who sure. are doing oboe in the classical concerto yeah. <laughs> uh, not that there's anything wrong with but our county choirs are I think they're 70% private schools sure. um, and it's not that we want to stop that from happening because no. these guys are great musicians and mm. they want to do that it's a passion but there's a whole bunch of really creative talented young people from yeah. backgrounds that can't afford to yeah. be involved in music yeah. and don't realise they can access Music Hub's provision. Yeah. Um, and that's that's one of my passions, yeah. is getting people to go yeah. Yeah. music. I think yeah. it's really important, really important work because there's so much of so much of music, particularly when you're when you don't have a financial backing, is um, it, it requires that um, encouragement from an early age. Um, and I think there's so many amazing musicians, so many amazing songwriters. They just fall behind beside the wayside because the talent wasn't fostered and they didn't have any money. Yeah. And I think it's fantastic work. And um, I I did read that um, over lockdown, you've set up is it Kavrena? Yeah, Kavrena Records. And, and how, what what's the difference between Kavrena Records and Lonely Bird? Age. That's all it is. Right. Um. So just from a safeguarding point of view, we can't have people who are older than nineteen on a site with kids that are. Under nineteen, right. so it's okay. just it's just a safeguarding thing. The and it was this this panic. Lockdown happened, and I went. Well, I'm not gigging anymore, and I'm not teaching anymore. And what do I do? So I called up my friend Wayne, who's a, a website genius. He runs yeah. a Jimmy Jamalula or something like that. His he makes websites for people. Yeah. And um, I said, Wayne, I need to do something. It needs to be online. Uh, We've got any ideas? <laughs> and he went, well, why don't you set up a platform for songwriting, which is modular, that people can complete a phase of it and then they can submit it to the next phase and people can respond to that. And that's a good idea. Genius. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think you still think it is genius, but what happened is people people need to be guided a little bit more, as if, yeah. unless they're musicians. So um, what happened is a few people engaged with it. The idea is that you can come up with a concept Mm. And you can put that concept onto a notice board. Someone else can come up with some lyrics for that concept. Right. And then someone else can come up with, or a storyboard for it. And then someone mm. else can come up with some harmonies and a top line melody. Mm. And you do this piecemeal 
like, and then finally a, a producer, someone who's got logic or garage band can go, right, let's take these lyrics and we'll mm. take these chords and we'll mm. build a backing track mm. and then hopefully by hook and crook we can get to the point where there's a finished demo which could then come back right. here and I could build it into something else. Yeah. Um, but what happened is people wanted to do the whole thing or nothing and yeah. the community vibe, and this is in Lonely Bird yeah. um, section, but with Kavrena it worked really well because there was a lot of youth leaders that were still working with children who were in challenging circumstances sure. or they were key workers children um, and they followed it not so much running on the website but they followed it as a series of challenges to do mm. so they used it as lesson plans within group nice. activities and yeah. loads of loads of songs were written yeah. um, during lockdown and it inspired a strategy for us as Cornwall Music Education Hub that all of this energy has been invested in English maths and science mm. but English in particular and there's a lot of young creative people that are poetic mm. but poetry maybe isn't they're cool mm. see they don't say it's too cool but they are poetic and they've had a lot of support for some their amazing English teachers, whereas they may have only had an hour every two weeks of Key Stage 3 music, mm. um, and otherwise they felt like they're, as much as there is provision attempted to be given to them, it's mm. not accessed all the time. Sure. So we were like, well, why don't we get people to write lyrics for songs in an English setting, yeah. and then we'll show them how to turn those lyrics into songs. So that's what Corvena's been doing. It's been creating new lyricists and then going, do you want to see how close the lyrics are to songwriting and taking them through that music production stage of going like stuff like the innate melody within yeah. the way that we speak and picking out those melody lines and how easy that is to go how easy that is to go and picking out rhythms and melodies yeah. from from spoken word and then understanding how melodies change with emotional intentions mm. and then showing them how to find harmonies that fit with their top line melodies and figure mm. out what key signature they're in. Mm. And actually, it's a really simple process when you mm. break it down reverse engineered like that. Mm. Like, what key signature are you in? Well, you don't know the theory behind it, so let's just ask Logic what, what key signature you're in by plotting those key notes in there. Sure. You've got an F sharp, you're probably going to be in maybe G or in D. Yeah. And what chords can you choose within that pattern? Well, let's say like the chord finder in, in Garage Bounder in Logic, and yeah. you can start to. And before the end of three sessions, they're going, ah, ah, okay, ah, oh, right. It's, a, yeah. it's like a grid of. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. and so we've had loads of people go on this absolute, like, rocket ship trajectory of going oh I'm not musical I'm not musical I, I produce my own music all the time yeah. <laughs> engage with band lab yeah. and yeah. garage band um, so that's been really interesting to, yeah. so that's what Corona is and is there a is there a closing the loop element eventually with will Corona release yes that's our intention um, the distributor perhaps yeah so distributor no we've partnered with Root Note so right, okay. Root Note are partly I mean, they're not behind it, but they've said, as soon as you have stuff, let us know. And they're going to tweak their platform so that if there are different contrib contributory artists, they will um, split the payment into different payments. Yeah. They don't normally do that because it's a ball lake, I guess. Yeah. But it's <laughs> within their infrastructure to be able to do that. And they've said, well, yeah. 
yeah. if you've got a writer and a, 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 a someone writing the chords and someone writing the lyrics and someone performing yeah. you can agree on a split and we'll set that up so that yeah. for every dollar they get yeah. their percentage um, and that, so that's a plan um, Great. and it's just been the whole COVID thing has kind of made it difficult to get into we've had a lot of tracks completed by students and it's usually a vocal on a, on a mobile phone right. or a, a loop that they've taken somewhere or yeah, um, sure. and there's there's been some rules around singing in public spaces uh, in yeah. in with microphones yeah. and yeah. So Slightly controversial rules because my mum's um, my mum's a quiet inquires. Ah, uh, okay. She's she's found it. She's constantly complaining about the rules around choirs. So I sure, there has been some frustration around. Oh, totally. Singing, yeah. Singing, singing being more of a you know um, nightmare, destructive force. For yeah, kind of yeah. But anyway, sorry. Carry on. So yeah, so we've got a load of tracks that have been written. And we just need to get those vocals recorded before we can release them. Yeah. And figure out if young people do want to release them. Because I think there's a bit of anxiety around it as well. Sure. Like, yeah. what are my mates going to think? Because yeah. as soon as it gets out there and their mates go, wow, that's really cool, yeah. then they're going to release track after track after track. Yeah. But um, I think there is a bit of anxiety, mm. especially with some of the cooler, harder lads who have written yeah. a... A love Stop song or a ballad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my mates are so gonna rip, <laughs> rip it at yeah. me for this one. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting navigating that whole. Yeah. A bit going back, almost kind of going back to the start of our <laughs> yeah. conversation about that. You know, um, confusing the music with the social standing yeah. elements and the politics. You just need a, a, a hot older girl <laughs> in to go. That song's really cool. Yeah. You rock. <laughs> Yes, I, I do. Yeah, I tell you what, I feel like that's totally, totally brought us back to a nice start yeah. for this conversation. Um, just, I mean, one last thing to, to talk about a little bit, um, which I always like to talk about, is um, what the future holds for you as a songwriter and, um, and your solo personal projects, and also the wider musical interests that you have. And like, what does the next twelve months sort of hold for you? What are your plans and ambitions going forward? Well, I would like to finish this place and do some I look writing. Forward to coming back when it's yeah. finished. <laughs> do some writing and recording with different musicians that inspire me. Yeah. Um, just because it would be a fun thing to do, mm-hmm. and I'd I'd also like to I've started to get into not that I'm a cameraman. One of the guys from the Nub Sessions is a cameraman, mm. and I was ask, asking him what camera kit to buy, and he quite angrily said what you're just going to buy the camera kit you're not going to do the three years at university and the two years apprenticeship with a, a film kit. you're just going to buy the kit is that is that how it works <laughs> like, so i spent five years training to get to this point and you're just going to go and buy it i was like yeah well yeah that's what i've done with music <laughs> just bought it and plugged it in see how it works um so i quite fancy setting up a, a sort of a live streaming you did thing. mention this yeah it sounds a really cool project um yeah. and again just it, I'm, I wouldn't tell the the guy, the business manager guy, who I've got to talk to about about doing this. But um, it's just for fun. I'm just yeah. <laughs> just want to do it. Yeah. I think it's I, I miss gigging, and I imagine a lot of other people do. Yeah. And I really love the nub sessions. Yeah. And I really like 
live music and recording records and mixing them after the fact. So getting a band in to, re to play through either an already recorded or an unrecorded record whilst live to their audience, yeah. I think would be magic. Yeah. And to capture some of that live yeah. vibes that, that are missed on recordings. Totally. And I think it's a really, um, it's a definitely a growth sphere. It's, um, I mean, you, in certain domains, live streaming's become extraordinarily popular, like particularly in like computer gaming and um, yeah. you know, the, the world of Twitch and the world of uh, definitely. live streaming and that domain. But I, music is definitely lagged behind. And I think, understandably, because a lot of people are very passionate and precious about live live music. Um, but nevertheless, I think it's uh, it's going to be part of the future, and I think it's uh, it's a great thing to to build live streaming into any if you're, any musicians actually if, if they've got um, their own stuff and they want to get out there. I think it's going to be this live streaming element is going to be really important. So, oh yeah, I yeah, think so. I think it's a great thing. Just as a tool. Yeah. Speaking about Twitch, one of the guys who lived at Number Ten with us, he was he was in a heavy metal band, and he hated the Hitchcock rules because we would always be making a racket playing the same song over and over again Dax yeah. would sit in his in his room at the back of the house going oh so cheesy <laughs> so cheesy and he would just play computer games all, all day yeah. and I used to worry about him and think yeah. and what are you going to do with your life man yeah. just going to play computer games and he's now this super twitch star he's wow. got <clears throat> he's got a massive following yeah. his his job is playing computer games yeah. Yeah. and yeah it's it's He's exactly as Amazing he was twenty happen, years yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But I mean, live streaming is is a big part of the future. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. Great. Well, I think that brings us to the end of uh, this podcast. Thank you so much for giving me your your evening. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to hear you play that wonderful Martin <laughs> and your wonderful songs, and um, and just have a chat. So thank you, Ryan Jones. The only thing is, if anyone is interested in. Um, hearing I know it's a bit tricky because you didn't, haven't really released anything but um, hearing your stuff from Hitchcock Rules or yeah. from Grey Dog so Grey Dog the best place to go and find those Grey Dog is on Spotify yeah. um, and all other streaming platforms the Hitchcock Rules is a little bit of a curveball because we uploaded all our music to Root Notes before Spotify was a thing right. um, <laughs> and therefore it's not like it's not the box isn't ticked on this ancient uh, catalogue for it to be on Spotify. <laughs> right. And we're currently going through the process of either re-uploading it or convincing someone at Root Note to tick that box on our behalf. Right. And it's some kind okay. of GDPR thing that they can't tick it in-house. We have to do it, but we can't get to that page because we uploaded it before it existed. And it's yeah, like, sure. Um, yeah. So the Hitchcock so rules... will be there somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. you can find it on iTunes and Amazon, I think. Okay. Um, oh, it's, it's on some of the streaming platforms. Um, and, and hopefully at some point there's Ryan cola Jones. as well yes we didn't talk about cola I, I just noticed on my, on my notes I've, I glossed over it but tell us quickly about cola and how you can cola was just an, an evolution after Grey Dog it was a girl called Annie Grey um, who's a violin player mm. and I was, I'm quite good friends with her dad actually John and her brother Fred was doing really well and was getting loads of gigs and John was like oh He's this, this badass Scottish ex-paratrooper, yeah. um, no-nonsense sort of guy. He went, oh, Fred's getting all these gigs, and he isn't getting any because she plays the guitar. 
start a band with Annie. And I went, <laughs> all right, <laughs> I'm not doing anything else. Yeah. So you'd be great at that. So uh, me and Annie had a chat and said, well, let's do that folk thing that I wanted to do. And we mm. put together this folk act. Dan from the Hitchcock Rules played guitar. And then we had a series of different drummers, a guy called Harry Harding um, and Matt, oh, I forgot his name, but a bunch of other standing drummers as well played mm. with us. And we did quite a few gigs, mm. um, and again fizzled out a little bit. Yeah, uh, but that's, that's that is recent, up. right? So that that's probably out on. Spotify. Yeah, there is an EP called Ruins on yes. Spotify. Okay, cool, and that's um, Kola with a K. Kola with a K. K O L A. Yeah, great. And so yeah, like I said to hopefully see some of your own stuff up there. At some I will. Point I've pr- well. I've promised. Great. Joe was talking to me about this the other day and saying. I promised that I'd get something out by Christmas. Yeah. So I'll, I'll get around to doing that. Yeah. Well, we don't have long to wait then. Yeah. <laughs> Brian Jones, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Cool. Cheers. Nice. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Jazzology podcast with my very special guest, Mr. Ryan Jones. If you'd like to make sure you don't miss any future Jazzology episodes, do head to your favourite podcast platform, like and subscribe. And if you are an Apple Podcasts fan, don't forget to leave a review and you may even get featured on a future podcast. More episodes coming very soon. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you on the next one.